0: Again, welcome and uh, grateful that we have this chance to look into God's word together uh, this morning. So we're continuing on in Matthew chapter 13 and we're looking at these parables. I hope uh, that as we have been going through them these past few weeks that um, uh, God has been opening your eyes and your ears to hear and to understand what he has to share with us about his kingdom We come now to the third parable, the parable of the mustard seed. Now, if we look back, we see that Jesus is really um, doubling down on these agricultural metaphors, right? We've come to the third one now, and he's still in uh, this sort of motif, right? We started with the parable of the sower, and we saw we had what? Seed. And soil, um, a sower, and growing and harvest, and we went into the parable of the weeds: more seed, more sowing, more planting, uh, more harvesting. and now we come to the parable of the mustard seed, and again, we have seed and a sower, and there's growing. Uh, yet this sermon, this uh, parable is much shorter than the others. Also, unlike the first two, Jesus doesn't give the explicit explanation for this particular parable. And unlike the other two, it really drills down and focuses on a particular type of seed being. Uh, The mustard seed. Now, I don't know if you ever have asked the question, what is your favorite seed? I've never asked that question of myself. I don't really know that many types of seeds, I guess. Um, If you had to ask the question of Jesus, though, what was Jesus' most favorite seed? We'd have to go with the mustard seed. We'd have to. So we have this parable here that's laid out in Matthew 13, We see uh, parallel accounts of this same parable in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. And then we see two additional times that Jesus uses the mustard seed in an illustration in two other ways. So one of those other instances is later on in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 17, he used it when his disciples could not cast out a demon from a child. So if you look in Matthew seventeen twenty, Jesus says in this situation, he's talking to them. He says, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Again, Jesus going back to the mustard seed, connecting it to faith in some sort of way. There's another instance where he uses it as an illustration more. It's in the Gospel of Luke. And again, he's sort of connecting it to faith. But he connects it to faith in the context of forgiveness. So this is in Luke chapter 17, verses 4 to 6. This is what Jesus says. He says, if your brother essentially sins against you seven times a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The Apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. It will obey you. So Jesus seems to be very enamored with this mustard seed. And in this specific parable that he constructs, If you look to the parallel accounts in Mark and in Luke, Jesus has a little introduction for the parable that we don't see in the Gospel of Matthew. And that little introduction is he sort of asks a question out loud. You can see that in Mark chapter 4, verse 30. Before he gets into the parable, he says, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable? shall we use to describe it? And then he gets in and he says, well, yeah, it's like a mustard seed. I've always found that introduction to the parable very interesting. Why did Jesus Jesus open up that this parable in that sort of way? What should we compare the kingdom of God to? What parable should we use? Almost as if he's throwing it out there. Uh, or, or is, he, is he just scratching his head and thinking out loud? Is he, say, is, he, is he buying time, you know? Preachers will do that sometimes when we forget our place and when we don't know where we are. It happens. <laughs> you just sort of talk until you find your place again. Is, is that what Jesus is doing? He's just throwing out some questions so he can sort out in his mind what he wants to say? I don't think so. I think he throws this question about what should we compare the kingdom of God to? What parable should we use, everyone? I think he throws out this question to help the people who were listening to understand that he, that he had a task on his hands because they thought they didn't need any help understanding the kingdom of God. See, Jesus knew exactly what they thought and what they were thinking. So he asked this this question in the beginning as his sort of way to get their attention because if he asked that question out loud and they thought it was more than just a rhetorical question and they thought that they needed to give an answer, what might the people have said? What should we compare the kingdom of God to? What parable should we use? What do you think they would say? They might say, well, maybe compare it to a fortress. Maybe compare it to an army. Maybe compare it to a, a tower. Maybe compare it to a lion. You know? Maybe that was something that they might have thrown out. But Jesus asked this question Because he was sort of letting them know that they would have to make some major shifts in their thinking. Specifically about the kingdom. The whole time Jesus was on the earth, the issue that occupied his attention was the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Now, the audience that was listening to him, they loved the idea of the kingdom. They did. They loved the idea of the kingdom. But when they were thinking about the word kingdom, what were they thinking about? The original hearers, when they heard kingdom, what, what were they thinking about? Well, they were thinking about the days of Samuel. Right? If you go back, what did the people say to Samuel. Give us a king. We want to be like the other nations. You can see that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And What did God do? God gave them a king at that time. Didn't really turn out the way that they had hoped. That's what they're thinking when they think of kingdom. When the disciples thought about the kingdom and this coming king, coming Messiah, what were they thinking about? They were thinking about that he would overthrow Caesar. And now that Jesus had come, what were they thinking about when they thought about the kingdom? They figured what? Well, it's not going to be long until this happens. And Jesus spent three years Trying to make them make this transition from natural understanding to spiritual understanding. And the parables served this purpose, served as this sort of entry point to new thinking, different thinking. The parables were a gateway to the new and the different, to reach people where they were and then move them to where they had never been before. And I think that's why there are so many parables, right? We've got quite a few here in Matthew chapter 13. There's way more than that spread throughout the Gospels, but I think that's why, because there are so many different ways that you could describe the kingdom And so many misguided um, approaches to thinking about the kingdom that we might have that need to be changed, that need to be corrected, that need to be shifted. I think that's part of the reason why there are so many parables. The kingdom that Jesus came to reveal was radically different from anything that the disciples had thought of. So, Jesus' task towards his disciples was to lead them, really, if you think about it, out of their comfort. To to lead them out of their comfort zone, out of their comfortable ways of thinking. Now, I don't know if you've realized it yet, but really, if you look at the Christian life, it, it involves just that. God leading us out of the comfort into something different for his purposes. Leading us out of, of our sort of comfort zones. I don't know if you've experienced that at all. I know I, know I have. Right? Just as you begin to get comfortable <laughs> with something, just when you think you have it, you, you've got it completely figured out, just when you think you know how the story ends, right? Just when you think you've got it completely planned out, the next thing you know, um, God is leading you into something new. See, in this life, we are being made more and more like who? Jesus. Jesus. When we reach eternity, what will it be? All comfort. All comfort all the time, 24-7. Well, there'll be no sun, so I don't think that, that won't even make sense, right, 24-7, just all the time. (laughs) When we get to eternity, it'll be all comfort, no tears, no having to search your heart, no resisting evil. But in this life, in this life, The very concept of change, the very concept of transformation, the very concept of growth means what? Being led out of your comfort. And Jesus is happy to do that. And one of the ways he does that is through his parables. So let's dig in to the parable a bit. It's really short, right? You heard it. Betsy was kind enough to read it for us. And really, again, the focus is on this particular seed, this mustard seed. And the the first characteristic that jumps out to us or that Jesus presents to us is what? What's the first characteristic about this seed that is significant? small, tiny. I think first we need to start acknowledging, start with acknowledging, Jesus taught the parable of the mustard seed as I think as as a reminder to us to not be discouraged by slow, bless you, slow, or small beginnings. God loves to begin with what seems to be inconsequential. And then He loves to surprise us by doing things we could have never imagined. If you heard the call to worship this morning, it was from Isaiah chapter 53. And these are Isaiah's words about the suffering servant, about the Messiah who would be to come. And we know that he's really talking about Jesus. And in in Isaiah 53 chapter 2, this is what he says of Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's an interesting picture. Have you ever thought about that picture? Isaiah compares the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus, to what? A root sticking out of dry ground. Again, we're back into this agriculture sort of thinking. But here's the idea. If you're walking along and there's a barren land, you don't see a whole lot growing. It's dry. It's, you know, looks just dead. But you look and you see a root sticking out of the ground. What's your expectation? No chance. (laughs) good luck root, look around, no chance, right? So that's really what's going on here. Because that dry root, which was Christ, which on the surface came as a suffering servant, and you looked at him and you'd say, Messiah? But what does God do? See, this is how God loves to do it. He likes to take What seems to be an inconsequential moment and then do something. Think about it in your own life, right? Like meeting a person for the first time and you, you know, exchange some pleasantries. In that moment, it's what is it? You bumped into somebody and you said, hey, what's up? You said, hi. and That's it. But go some weeks later, go some months later, go some years later and look back at that moment and what do you realize? That was a pivotal event. In, in my life because that, that person that m- and, and that moment that seems so inconsequential turned out to ultimately, what, have a great influence in my life, whether it be a spouse, a friend, a mentor, or whatever it could be. The moment in and of itself was so inconsequential. See, and just so, just like that, God loves to begin to with what, what at first seems inconsequential in that way. So another reason Jesus told this parable um, was, I think, was to show that God can take the most unlikely person, the most unlikely person, and then turn them into a vessel that he uses for his sovereign purposes. To put it another way, it seems as though people who are rejected Atten- get God's attention. People who are rejected get God's attention. Seemingly, God loves to take someone who has been hurt, misunderstood, underestimated, and then turn them into a vessel that he uses for his sovereign purposes. You can see that narrative throughout Scripture in multiple examples. There are other reasons I think this parable, Jesus uses this parable. I think it's also important because it shows us that God can take a very unpromising situation and turn it into triumph, into glory. the greatest event in the history of the world was the most greatly underestimated event in the history of the world. If you were at Calvary 2,000 years ago, And, you know, if we bring it into modern day sort of thinking, right? If you were there, th- no news vans parked at the base of Mount Calvary. No satellite trucks there ready to capture this moment. Or if you bring it further into our modern sort of day social media sort of world, no, no one was there going, oh, I gotta, I gotta stream this thing live. No one was there at that cross going, oh, man, I gotta snap this, something is happening here. I, I, gotta, I gotta snap this thing right now. Or, oh, oh I need to take a selfie with this, this, this thing that's going on right now, people need to know that I'm here, this is something. Like, this is history in the making, and uh, we, we, got, we, we, need, we need to let people know. I need to let people know that I'm here. Something important is happening. I am so privileged to be here in this moment. Nobody was saying or thinking that at Calvary. No one. At the time, it seemed to be nothing more than a very tragic, sad event that signaled that the hopes of many people had come to an end. That's what it was. Jesus, hanging on a cross, what is the mob saying? He saved others. He can't save himself. Go a few weeks later. Go just a few weeks later. And Peter is preaching on Pentecost. And you know how he describes Jesus? You know how he describes Jesus? After the cross, after the resurrection. He describes Jesus as the one whom the builders rejected has become what? The cornerstone. God loves to do this. Take the most unpromising situation and turn it into glory. So there's lots of ways you can kind of dig into this parable and, and think about the nature of this mustard seed and its smallness and what happens and how sort of Jesus might have thought about it and how, it might, how he might use it. And when you come to the purpose of the parable and you dig into it, remember, he compa- he's comparing this mustard seed to the kingdom of God. And again, talk about kingdom. Kingdom talk was language that Jesus' disciples were comfortable with, right? Jesus talks about a kingdom. They're they're okay with that, but they were thinking what? Differently than Jesus. So when he used the word kingdom, when Jesus uses the word kingdom, he had to address their earthly point of view. Why? Because kingdom to the disciples means what? Greatness. Glory. Glory. What did, they, what did they think of? Right? They're thinking back to the days of David, to the days of Solomon. Now I want you to flash back with me to Matthew chapter 8, when we were in the Sermon on the Move. And what did we see on the Sermon on the Move that Jesus was doing a lot of what? Miracles, right? And man, every time Jesus performed a miracle, I imagine one of the disciples sort of standing there, glancing over at the the Roman soldiers. What are they thinking? What are they thinking? They're going, (laughs) you know, won't be long before these guys are out of here, right? Jesus heals someone. Jesus casts out a demon. These these disciples, they're looking over at the Romans going, oh, oh, boy. Won't be long now till they're gone. Right. They were eagerly, eagerly awaiting this day when the Roman soldiers and governors were going to be sent packing. See, for them, the, the, the Messiah, the Son of Man, this figure from Daniel or that, that, we, that we talked about, which is Jesus, was, was going to be this godlike figure who would come with a power, a charisma, maybe some military genius, anything else that would show might and power. If you go to John chapter 6 and you see where Jesus feeds the 5,000, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the people say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And then it says, Jesus, knowing that they would come and try to make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Do you see that? It's almost as though Jesus had to be careful about performing miracles because people would get the wrong idea about what exactly he came to achieve. And maybe the fact that Jesus talks about the mustard seed should have given people a little bit of a clue. They wanted to, quote-unquote, think big about the Messiah. But if you want to stick with Jesus, you know, um botanical analogy. What did they see the Messiah as? Like like a cedar. Like think I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of those redwood trees out in California, right? Like trunks you can't even wrap your hands around them, right? That's what they're thinking when they think Messiah cedar branches beautiful trees and beautiful leaves and all of that what are they not thinking about they're not thinking about a root sticking out of dry ground they're not thinking about that and so the purpose of this parable was to help them what adjust their perspective to sort of begin to think about eternal values. The people wanted everything to happen what? Suddenly. Sounds familiar, right? They wanted it here and now. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a parable, and right at the beginning where it talks about him saying the parable, this is what it said. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. It says, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. See that? In a sense, this is why Jesus told every parable in a way because he knew what people what people were thinking about the coming kingdom the parables presented this new radically different sort of principles the thought of having faith we throw the word faith out all the time right? Because because it is core to what we believe. It is core to Christianity. But go back to the original hearers. Go back to the folks that Jesus was talking to. The thought of having faith was an alien concept to most of the people at the time. Why would they need faith? For sure the Messiah is going to do it. <laughs> everything for them why would they need to talk about trust why would they need to talk about humility why would they have to wait on god their messiah was going to accomplish all of these things for them but jesus said that small beginnings will lead you to God's own view and perspective of success. So another sort of purpose that when we think about um, this parable was really to present sort of an analogy of extremes. An analogy of extremes. You hear it in the language, right? If, If we read verse 32, Matthew 13, 32, Jesus says, though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yes, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Extreme, smallest, largest. The Bible is, um, and particularly Jesus' teachings, full of these extreme variations. You can probably rattle off a few right now. Whoever humbles himself will what? Be exalted. That was, that was something novel for people to hear with their ears. They hadn't hear some, heard something like that. The greatest among you will be your servant. Do you think many people were eager to hear those, those words that Jesus said? Do you think we're, do, are, are we eager to hear those words that Jesus says? When Jesus talked about what it would, what, what it would really take to honor God, this is what he says. This is, comes from John chapter 12, 24 to 26. This is Jesus saying, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will what? Lose it. While the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who... who serves me? Love your life, lose it. Hate your life, keep it. Extremes. Jesus' teaching is full of them. And this parable is one. The smallest becomes what? The greatest. So, how do you become great? Become great. You become small. Jesus was saying that just as this mustard seed becomes the largest of garden plants, God can turn your inconsequential beginnings into a glorious ending. But you have to change your thinking. So, a lot of purposes built into the parable. But we also have to think about this parable in a prophetic way. There is a, a prophecy nestled in here in this parable. So in this parable, Jesus was in a way announcing that a new world order had begun. Right? There was a new order that had come in. What does he say? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field, right? So Jesus wanted to show his followers that a process had already begun, that the kingdom of God was upon them. The seed was planted, so Jesus was trying to make clear to his followers what they should expect, Right? So that's why you can think of this, this parable prophetically. So Jesus prophesied some principles here that, that would affect anyone that would follow him. What does Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And again, right, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. I don't know if you've noticed this in your life, but that's exactly the way it happens. Whenever you do your best to sort of protect yourself and make yourself completely invulnerable, it doesn't work. When you try to take things into your own hands, when you try to when you try to try to get your hands on it, and I've experienced this numerous times, right? When you try to get your hands on it, it never works. Instead, we have to lose our life to God. In order to have a life in abundance back, we have to lose our life to God. What does Paul say in Romans 8.28? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Whose job is it to make things work together for good? Is that your job? Is that on you? That's God. God makes it work, makes it all work together for good. For those he has called, for those who love him. When we're in a situation that has become a a mess, our human tendency is to see, you know, what we can do to make it work together for good. We try to manipulate, we try to pull the strings. How how does that turn out for you? Right, I, you get things get worse. It is not your job to work all things together for good. That is that is the job of the, our sovereign God. There's another sort of prophesied principle that Jesus um, is getting at here. And the essence of this principle is that Jesus' way of doing things is often opposite from ours. Who does he choose to be his disciples? Fishermen? Tax collector? Jesus chose these people as disciples so that nobody could think anything great was going to happen. Again, think of the dry root. People come and they say, Oh, okay, we heard about Jesus. Let's see the team he pulled together. And they look at it and they say, This is the team? I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how this is going to work out. And ever since Jesus chose fishermen and tax collectors, he's been calling people who you would think would amount to nothing. We are ordinary people. Because that way, no one could have any delusions about how Im- important we are. And Jesus was, was really speaking about a pattern that can be seen throughout Scripture. Again, some of these patterns that Jesus has talked about, you can see them throughout, all throughout Scripture. I think God kind of likes to start small. You think about the story of Gideon. Gideon had 3,000 men for battle. And God says, hmm, too many. They get down to 300, God says what? Okay, now we can do it. You see, the planting of a mustard seed, you think about that idea of what happened, that seed that is planted, but then what comes after, that's what happened when Jesus was dying on the cross. That's what happened. Nobody alive said, get ready for something big because Jesus is on the cross now. No. It is a day of disaster. Also, nobody was threat threatened when a hundred and twenty disciples later gathered together and were were praying that the Spirit of God would come upon them, nobody was looking at that going, oh boy, something's about to happen. Nobody worried about that because to them, their leader was gone. What are they doing? Yet what happens? The Spirit of God comes down on that day. And the world was never the same. That's the prophesied purpose of this parable of the mustard seed. But there is even more. See, the mustard seed, when, it become, when it, um, once it becomes this very large plant, almost verging on what you could consider a tree, but here's the thing. It will never rival the, the majesty of an oak or a cedar, right? You look at a mustard seed, even when it grows to its most sprawling state, you would, wouldn't mistake it for a, a cedar tree or an oak tree. Yeah, Jesus wants us to know that his, his church will truly grow, right? And we've seen it from, from the humble beginnings to where the gospel has gone. But Jesus wants us to know that the growth of the church, however visible, right, however much it will affect people's lives, will never look very grand in the world's eyes. Jesus was saying in this parable that his kingdom is not of this world. God will do things in his own strategy. He will do things in his own subtleties, in his own way. So we've considered the purposes of the parable and the sort of prophetic nature of the parable. Now what about the potential of this parable and what it might mean for us? Are you prepared to live the life of a mustard seed planter? Are you prepared to live that life? So we've... We talked about these sowers and these other... Right here, we're talking about a sower of a particular seed, right? Are you ready to live the life of a mustard seed planter? Can you agree to live by these prophetic principles that we've talked about and patterns that Jesus has given us through this parable? What does it mean for us? It means the willingness to become nothing and to remain a nobody. That you will wait to be vindicated and you might have to wait a long time. That your strategy will be for to let God bring his purpose and his success in his time. And there must be transparency to your life to do this. Because to to live like this, you you need true faith. You need faith to live like this. If we go back to one of those other circumstances where Jesus uses the mustard seed example, it was a child. There was a child that was having seizures and who was throwing himself into a fire. And it, he was brought to Jesus. And the man says to Jesus, I brought my child to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And then immediately, this is in Matthew 17. Immediately, Jesus healed the child, and his disciples wanted to know, why couldn't we do it? What does Jesus say? Because you have so little faith. Their faith wasn't even as large as a mustard seed, because he says what? If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, what does this tell us about the faith that's required to live this mustard seed planter life, to live this life where we become nothing, but that's okay because we're trusting in God's plan. What, 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 is, what does that mean, this mustard seed faith? What that lets us know is God is not looking for us to have perfect faith, but faith in a perfect God. is not so much the quality of your faith, but the object of your faith. See, if you have fervent faith, like you have extreme, 100% faith, whatever you want to call that, You are ultimately super passionately, and you've got faith, but the object of your faith is unreliable. Does it matter how strong your faith is? No. But if you can just have a little bit of faith, but the object of your faith is 100%. is ultimately reliable. See, it's not about great faith he requires of us, but faith in a great savior. Once you focus on him and know he is the one who turns things around, that that's true faith. See, God's God's looking for a true faith, a living faith. A faith that knows its object clearly. As we come to close this morning, and we think about this faith. If that faith is real, if that faith is real, what will it do? It will grow. It will grow. And what is the potential? What is the potential? I think of 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 2, nine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. The process of the seed coming to fruition takes time, and we need to let it grow and allow God to do his work. Work. There are always small days. There are always going to be small days. There are always going to be inconsequential days when you think nothing is happening. See, the willingness to be nothing and not to despise an inconsequential beginning, in a way, it sends a signal up to heaven. God welcomes that and says, ah, you know, yeah, I can work with that. And he does the rest because time is on his side. See, the kingdom that Jesus is talking about here to his disciples, we're part of that same kingdom. The kingdom that his disciples preached, we're part of that same kingdom. It's a kingdom that God is continuing to expand and this is going to continue until one day many many from every nation and tribe and people and language will shout praises to Christ the king right and on that day the kingdom that began as a mustard seed that will be in fullest bloom it will be the realization of revelation chapter 11:15 the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his messiah and he will reign for ever and ever it's a short parable and we spent a lot of time on the seed But I wonder if you missed the character in the story. There's a character in the story, isn't there? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. See, we see the beginning and we see the end. What did we miss? or What might we miss in this parable? The sower. The unseen sower. Jesus doesn't highlight him here in the parable. He shows the beginning and he shows the end. But he doesn't highlight him in the parable. But what do we know the sower must have done? What was that unseen sower doing between the beginning and the end? Cultivating. Watering, tending, caring, protecting until it achieved the purpose that He wanted for that seed. And it is the same with your life. That at times you're going through things and you wonder, is anything happening? Is God at work? Do not forget the unseen sower, that as you trust in him, what is he doing? He is cultivating, he is watering, he is nurturing, he is protecting, so that his purposes will come to fruition in your life. And thanks be to God for that. Amen. Amen. Let's take an opportunity and chance to respond now to God in worship.